0: Please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for January 6th, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. We have a very full show for you today, our first in this new year. With us for the hour is Richard Kreitner. We'll be speaking with him about his book, Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union, as well as how that history illuminates our current situation. But before I introduce Richard Kreitner, a moment to honor the passing of Carrie Dan, indigenous leader, land rights activist, and water protector, who died at the age of 88. Beginning in the 1970s, Carrie Dan and her sister Mary refused to pay grazing fees to the federal government over its repeated violations of the 1863 Treaty of Ruby Valley, which defined Western Shoshone territory. In the 1990s, Armed federal marshals rounded up the Dan sisters' horses and cattle in a series of sometimes violent raids, setting up a legal fight that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and the United Nations. Rather different treatment than the Bundy family experienced with far less claim to violate federal grazing laws. You can go to democracynow.org to view or listen to their interview with Carrie Dan. Carrie Dan, presente. Now, on to our show. Richard Kreitner has been an editor and writer at The Nation magazine since 2012. His essays and articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, USA Today, Slate, and the Baffler, among other places. His latest book is Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union, published by Little Brown and Company. His earlier book is Booked, A Traveler's Guide to Literary Locations Around the World. With that, we welcome you to Forthright Radio, Richard Kreitner.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, Richard, when our show ends, which is noon Eastern time... Proceedings are scheduled to begin at the joint. Actually, it's 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Proceedings are scheduled to begin in the joint session of Congress to receive the certified Electoral College vote of the 50 states presided over by outgoing Vice President Pence. The runoff Senate election in Georgia appears to have resulted in both seats being won by the Democratic candidates, Raphael Warnock by a secure margin of more than 53,000 votes, and John Ossoff by a far narrower margin of just over 17,000, with about 2% of ballots uncounted, largely from precincts in which the Democrats are expected to win. This is considerably larger than the margin with which Biden is certified to have won the presidential race in Georgia. Neither of the Republican incumbents have conceded the race, and it's highly likely that the results will be contested with an unknowable amount of time before the results are certified. Meanwhile, Yesterday, the Pennsylvania Senate's swearing-in ceremony devolved into a chaotic scene when state GOP senators refused to seat a Democratic member who had won re-election and whose election had been certified. They seized control of the proceedings from the Democratic lieutenant governor after his objections. And as we broadcast... Pro-Trump demonstrators are rallying in front of the White House, where Trump is scheduled to speak to them at any minute. For many, this seems a time fraught with danger and chaos, and many ask, uh, can the union hold together? Well, your study of the history of the United States of America informs your analysis Please share with our listeners your thoughts on this historic moment now, and then we will explore the history itself.
1: Great, yep. Thank you again for having me. I mean, a lot to chew on there. Many of, of what of what you talked about seems almost as if as if ripped from the pages of my book, um, especially chapters about much earlier periods in American history, where constitutional norms and practices and, and institutions were much more up for grabs than they have been for the last you know fifty, a hundred, even hundred fifty years. Um, to just take one example, the, what what happened in in Pennsylvania of of the Republicans refusing. to to seat a duly elected Democratic representative is very similar to the fights that unfolded in Congress and, and elsewhere around the country and state legislatures in the years after the Civil War during Reconstruction, when, um, you know, in Congress at least, Republicans who had been loyal to the Union refused to accept um, Southern members who had been elected to Congress because they, they disagreed as to whether the Southern states were back in the Union after having lost the Civil War or whether they needed to go through some kind of larger Reconstruction Construction process in order for that to happen, um, so that you know that 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 is an echo that kind of you know springs out to me immediately. Um- the, the, the Pence situation in Congress today of, of what he will do and, and how far Republicans will go to try to thwart the uh, certification of Joe Biden's Electoral College victory reminds me of some stories that I tell in the book about, about contested elections in the 19th century um, after the 1800 election and, and I think even more, more um, notably a uh, historical parallel, the 1876 presidential election, both of which um, were, you know, conflicted and contested for months after Um, After the election day and before inauguration day, nobody really knew who would be president or whether the country would kind of fall into some kind of massive uh, political violence or civil war. and we we can go further into those examples. Um, but what what this this says to me kind of you know um, affirms my hunch a few years ago when I started this project, which is that uh, you know think the future seems to be far more radically open um for this country in in terms of you know for in both good and bad ways than than it has been for really quite a while um, and I think you know, as we saw last month, the word word secession kind of sprung back into American politics when the chair of the Republican Party, Alan West, threatened that, you know, Republican-leaning states should either form a separate union within the United States um, to protest Biden's uh, inauguration and presidency, or, or perhaps even secede from the union itself. These these words um, like secession and disunion that have been absent for really quite a long time have kind of returned to American life, and I think it spells a very tumultuous and troublesome decade ahead.
0: Yeah, it was pretty good timing on your part to do the five years of research that Resulted in this book, Um, and lest lest our listeners think, "Oh, history! I can't stand history. It's so boring." Yada yada yada. I just want to remind you that, as um, as someone said, uh, uh, whose name I am ashamed to say I can't remember right now. Very um, Faulkner. Okay, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: the uh, history isn't past. um, It's history isn't dead. No, the past isn't dead. It isn't even past. Right. Headline from yesterday Last known widow of Civil War veteran dies at 101. Helen Viola Jackson, the last known widow of a Civil War soldier, has died at 101. She died on December 16, 2020. In 1936, when Jackson was 17 years old, she married James Bolin, a 93-year-old widower who served in the 14th Missouri Cavalry during the Civil War. The war ended in 1865 156 years ago so we are far more closely connected to things that seem as far away as the civil war than we usually think about um so richard any comments about that before we go on
1: well, I'm I'm a, I'm trying to recover from the idea of a 17-year-old marrying a 92 or 93-year-old, whatever he says. <laughs> um, but setting aside that that deep personal disgust, um, yes, and that's absolutely right. You know, it's still a very young country. Um, you, you know, I, I don't know how many generations back to the revolution, but it's certainly less than 10. Um, And, you know, I think, didn't we hear recently that John Tyler's grandson is still alive or something like that? Um, Yeah, no, it's it's really not very long ago. I mean, as for the Faulkner quote, I think there are two reasons why people should be reading American history right now. And, And, you know, ideally my book, but there's a lot of really great work being done. And uh, in both these respects, one is uh, as the Faulkner quote suggests: uh, the past is not even dead; it is not even past. What happened in the past shapes what what is going on right now, in, in all kinds of ways, in our institutions, in our political parties, in in our practices, in our in our attitudes towards divisive questions of race and class. Um, and, you know, so so the past shapes the present. And then, secondly, there are important historical parallels. Um, and not, nothing is ever exact. You know, there's another famous expression, I'm pretty sure it was Mark Twain, that that, that, that um, the past never repeats itself. It only rhymes with the present. And there are many important rhymes between past episodes in American history, such as the ones that I discussed, and especially, as you note, around the Civil War era and what's going on today. And when you read about what happened then and how it turned out and what people needed to do in order to achieve a peaceful and hopefully a just outcome, or things that they did not do that led to very negative outcomes um you know for a lot of people um can be instructive today as to how we should behave, um, both politically and I think also socially with our, with our friends and family and, and how we treat people of different political persuasions. So I think this is a excellent time to be studying, um, American history. For myself, you know, I had this hunch that the, the story of disunion was relevant today. Um, you know, and, and it was kind of in the late Obama period and it wasn't so much a response to Trump as it was to, you know, to, to some things I saw going on in, in the late Obama presidency. Um, but working on the book uh throughout the Trump presidency offered i think something of a refuge from this this present day turmoil and and a a, a certain um consoling perspective um on what was going on today in the past and uh, just just one more thing you know a lot of people say that um, you know we've been through worse before as a country and we prevailed so surely we will survive this too but my studies of the past showed that there was really no guarantee that we were going to survive um, either the Civil War as one country intact or other much less well-known episodes in American history you know of conflict and, and contestation and, and possibly even actual physical division um, and it took you know human effort to, to ensure that that happened. And in some cases, it was due to compromises um, that really sold out large large groups of the population, especially African Americans. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't be complacent today that we will survive, or necessarily, I, I think, um, this is probably the most controversial aspect of the book, um, necessarily that we should, uh, depending on what, what that costs. Um, so while I don't want to suggest that the past should necessarily be a consolation for us in the present because we survived um, then and we will now. What what, what I find consoling is that it was up to Americans then to decide their own fate. That is the nature and the purpose of self-government, and it's similar today. Um, It's up to us, I think, to decide what kind of country we want to be, and indeed whether we want to be one country.
0: Well, Richard Kreitner, among the other things your book, Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union does, is offer a reality check on the mythologies that have arisen over the years of our history, among them the disposition of the colonies leading to the American Revolution and the establishment of the United States they saw themselves as sovereign nations in their own right and it was a big deal to give up that sovereignty to form what they called at the time a confederacy after the revolutionary war correct
1: that's right yeah i mean they didn't see themselves as sovereign nations as in sovereign from england um but from each other they they had really no connection to one another there was really no trade between the colonies there was no you know um Really, intercourse of any kind, and they had different ethnic backgrounds often. You know, many people were French or German, others were, of course, you know, mostly British or Scottish or Irish, and they had different religious persuasions, but they had a much closer connection to the mother country, to England, than they did to one another. And it was that kind of independence from each other that they really try to preserve as long as they possibly could. Um, you know, most stories about American history kind of skip over the colonial period rather quickly, especially stories about the, the coming-to-be of the American nation. But when you think about it, it was a century and a half between the settlement um, of, you know, Jamestown and Plymouth, um, Massachusetts, the earliest, you know, lasting American settlements, North American settlements, and the formation of the Union in the Revolution, which is the same period of time, a century and a half, since the Civil Wars. It a really long period of time, and the reason why they didn't join together was not because um, nobody thought of the idea of federation. There were plans of union proposed by William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, and by Benjamin Franklin. Um, but they were rejected out of hand because, uh, again, the colonies really wanted nothing to do with one another. And when they joined together in the revolution, it was really a means to an end. It wasn't an end in itself. They still wanted nothing to do with one another. They simply realized that the only way that they could secure their independence from England um, was to fight together and then to form one kind of almost like an international alliance, um, if you will. And, and right after the revolution, it, it almost immediately breaks apart, because nobody really wanted to, to have anything to do with one another in the first place. So it took a, a very long time before this idea of, of you know, a truly united country um, achieved purchase in people's hearts and minds.
0: You, you shed light on some attitudes, even at that time, the colonies seemed to segment themselves in identities as Northerners and Southerners. And you quote different letters from people like George Washington, and I forget who the New Englander was, but each of them criticized the inhabitants of the other region, using the same terms, they're dirty and stupid. <laughs> I thought that was very interesting, just in terms of our our modern understanding of projection. Um, so I don't know if you have any comments on that or not, but I think yeah. I think that. Go on.
1: <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. That's a very good observation. That's definitely one thing that I'm not sure consciously or not that I wanted to point out, which is that these differences, these, these really bitter enmities between Americans of different regions and also different political parties, but at the time the, the parties were really segmented um, regionally, began far earlier than we tend to think you know, it's not really a product of the Civil War era, it, or, or really about slavery, necessarily. It was kind of there from the beginning. They just, you know, before the Revolution, I think you're referring to George Washington, um, his observations in the Continental Army encampments outside Boston as early as 1775. And that was really the first time that Americans from different colonies, soon-to-be states, had anything to do with one another, because, as I said, there was very little traveler or, you know, in, um, you know, communication between them. it was the first time they really encountered one another in close quarters, and they absolutely despised each other, um, because again, they had very different uh, backgrounds and different cultural identities. Um, so they, they, they totally loathed each other, and it, it was it was one example, and this, this happens a lot in American history, where closer contact breeds more disagreement than, than anything else. Um, and, and as I say, it took really quite a long time for them to overcome that, and, and I kind of argue that they never really did. Um but these these regional antipathies, you know, predate the establishment of the United States, and you know, last until the present day.
0: I don't know if I could say that I derive comfort from the knowledge that that loathing existed even during the Revolutionary War time when we were supposedly, you know, united, et cetera. But it does take some of the feeling of shock that i have experienced over the last i don't know 20 30 years with increasing uh, recognition of the polarization in our country i had been raised to believe that we are these United States, and um, we have more in common than we have not in common. And it has been an experience of shock for me to be um, forced to see how ugly and loathing is actually a usable word in the context and we are seeing that play out literally as you and i are speaking richard in um in the question of will we have a peaceful transition of power from one president to another so anyway i thank you for that it's a reality check um but let's get back to the mythology and let's start with um, if you want to briefly talk about the period ap- right after the Revolutionary War where there was the Articles of Confederation, which didn't work and led to we've got to do a constitution. Uh, don't spend a lot of time on the Article of Confederation, but do give a little context.
1: I will yeah I just want to go back just real quick cuz you mentioned that this belief that we are these United States and I think it's very interesting that we often um Kind of invoke the name of the country as itself an argument about that country, and that's really how it began. It's it, it's a very weird name for a country to have. It's not France or China or Russia. It's the, the United States of America. It's a claim. Um, and when you look at at how it got that name, it, it's very clear that it's it's kind of an ambitious name. It's an aspirational name. They weren't observing that the states were united at that time because they weren't. They were hoping that in time they would become united, but but the name implies the possibility of its opposite, you know, the possibility that that which is united can come to be divided or or, or disunited. Um, So the name itself, to me, suggests not so much what it purports to, which is union, but the ever-present possibility of its undoing, of disunion. So just a a little riff uh, on that. The the period, the 1780s, I think, is one of the most interesting periods of American history because, as I said, they never really wanted to form a union. It wasn't the goal. It was kind of uh, an accidental byproduct of the revolution. So afterwards, they, they kind of look around and they say, well, do we really want this country to work out, what would it take? Um, And the Articles of Confederation was a very weak constitution. A lot of people liked it that way, because, um, you know, as we were talking about the colonial period, they were jealous of their local prerogatives and and kind of autonomy, and they didn't really want to give it up in order to form a stronger nation. Um, You know, some people did want to do that, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and that was largely because they thought that a stronger nation, a more integrated kind of continental economy, would Benefit them would, re- you know, to be to be frank about it, would benefit really the one percent of that day and and enable them, you know, their profits to grow. It was it was really a commercial um, enterprise more than a political one. The, the idea of forming a so-called more perfect union. Um, so they, they they take advantage of these crises that break out in the 1780s, um, especially the year 1786. Um, uh, uh, there's a populist rebellion in Massachusetts, Shay's Rebellion, um, of, of you know former um, revolutionary veterans who are irate because of uh, high debts and high taxes, and they feel like um, you know they're being pinched for the for the benefit of the wealthy few. Um, so that's one crisis that the, the the nationalists, as historians call them, took advantage of in order to introduce a new constitution. Then um, there were bitter divisions um, between north and south and east and west over such things as whether to press Spain, which controlled New Orleans at the time and therefore the Mississippi River, um, to open up the Mississippi River to American traffic. Uh, it's a whole thorny complicated issue, but, you know, trade disputes was a major a major cause of, of tension between the states and between the regions. Um, but what happened ultimately is that they overthrew the Constitution as it then existed, the Articles of Confederation, and took it on themselves, these, you know, roughly forty or fifty men in Philadelphia, to introduce a new one. Um, now that's essentially, I, I think, essentially a coup d'etat, because it was extra-constitutional. The Articles of Confederation required unanimous support from the states for any amendment, and certainly for, you know, throwing it out and writing an entirely new constitution. But when they introduced the new one in Philadelphia um, and, and put it to the country for a vote, um, it required only support from nine states, uh, rather than all thirteen. Um, so you know, and and some of the states, Rhode Island, North Carolina, they held out for quite an, a few years, um, and argued that it was the nationalists, the people like Washington and Hamilton, who had dissolved the union that then existed and created a new one. Um, and I think, we, you know, we obviously have these mythologies, as you say, about the American founding, and especially about the American constitution, um, but if it were to happen today, I think we would all be extremely alarmed, and and probably call it a coup d'etat, um, so that's that's kind of my take on the 1780s. It's kind of a a, a radical one, but um, yeah. Does that, does that answer your question?
0: Yes, it does. And you have a, a quote in your book. Uh, I'm not sure to whom it's attributed, but after Shays' Rebellion, when the elites recognized they had to do something, um, they saw, the, I'm quoting your book now, they saw the violence as heralding something, quote, rather worse than anarchy, a pure democracy, end of right. quote. And in the process of deciding what to do about that, they very explicitly recognized that it would be far easier to undermine pure democracy in a larger geographic area than a smaller one. And and you also um, kind of burst some of the recent bubbles of admiration around Alexander Hamilton um, would you would you share some of those burst bubbles and also the concept that the larger the geographic area the less likely pure democracy can be part of the system
1: sure yeah I mean this this was really the, the kind of crucial insight that sent me down the road of this entire project which was the, the realization that as it was designed and I think in, in certain respects as it as it's still um, uh as serves um, the Constitution and a large union, a large consolidated nation, really serves the purposes of the defenders of the status quo, especially an in, in egalitarian status quo, rather than those who are trying to redistribute property and power more equally. Um, and this was Madison's crucial insight that led to the Constitution, because in the 1780s there was this, this horrible economic depression that, that a lot of historians say was, you know, pretty much on par with that of the 1930s. And there, as I say. W- in Massachusetts, there were these populists who were insisting on their state legislatures passing. Oh, excuse me, are you there? Uh, yes. Hello? Oh, sorry about that. Um, there are these populists who were insisting on their state legislatures passing laws um, that would alleviate their their debt and tax burdens, and they actually took over um, Rhode Island is this kind of the crucial state here where this populist coalition came in and they passed paper money laws which allowed debtors to much more easily pay off their debts and This was horribly unpopular with the creditors with the wealthy of of that time um, and Madison realized that if you made the government across the entire continent you know so the constitution bans paper money is kind of the first order of business when they get to philadelphia because they all agree that um we can't have these wealth distributing you know measures um... passing at the national level so if you make um, you know a coalition like in rhode island or or the rebellion in massachusetts succeed at a national level because of the transportation you know um Tech, you know, technologies of the day, the, the really slow communication. You're never going to get everybody from New Hampshire down to Georgia to, you know, to join together um, in any kind of protest movement or any kind of progressive or populist uh, movement. Um, so so that's kind of why Madison believed that if you, he, said, he called it, extend the sphere of national politics, you make it less likely that there will be what he called communication and concert among any particular class of people so this is well known this is in Federalist number ten and kind of you know the, the the crucial um... essay explaining madison's thought but what a lot of people skip over is that in that essay he's very specific about who he is trying to disempower um, by, by extending the sphere of american politics it's not any particular Class of Americans. It's specifically those who are in favor of, as he says, an abolition of debts or an equal distribution of property. Um, so when I read that, you know, my eyes kind of jumped out of my face because, it you know, this was 2014, um, you know, th- three years after Occupy Wall Street in the middle of the first Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and it seemed like it, it was incredibly easy for these protest movements to dissipate and not really accomplish their goal in this large national system. And it seemed to me like Madison was, you know, explicitly saying that that was really the purpose of setting up the Constitution in the first place. Um, and so, so that kind of it explains um, my thinking on that. As for Alexander Hamilton, yeah, I, I, I definitely... Um, in trying to burst his, his recent popularity, and that's for a number of reasons. One, he was really against democracy, as, as, as that quote. I don't think that's Hamilton himself, but he would have totally agreed with it. Um, he was really against democracy, and not just you know, direct democracy, but, but really representative democracy as well. He wanted to concentrate power in as few hands as possible, and he wanted to really return um, the United States to a much more you know, British-style form of government. With um, yeah, I think he wanted senators to have lifetime Terms um, and, and the president as well. So um, I definitely think that you know those of us who have seen the musical and been kind of taken in um, by the, the renewed Hamilton cult should should think again. There, there's one letter that kind of combines these two themes of, of what I'm talking about with the the um, reg- you know the reactionary kind of regressive nature of a large union and Hamilton's you know anti. Democratic um, Sentiments And this is Really the last Letter that he Writes In 1804 Right before he You know His road across The Hudson River For his duel With Aaron Burr There's a um, a secessionist movement going on in New England at the time, and I show in the book that that's really what led to the Hamilton-Burr duel in the first place. Not that they simply disliked each other, which is kind of what the the musical suggests, but that they disagreed with whether um, this separatist movement in New England should be countenanced or supported. Burr was kind of flirting with it, and Hamilton was really resolutely opposed to it. But why was he opposed to it? You know, this is kind of what I'm getting at. It's not simply that he loved america and wanted the nation to continue he writes to a colleague in new england that to break up the union would be unfortunate that it shouldn't be done because it would make the real disease in american politics worse and that disease he says is democracy which if you broke down the union would become more virulent in each of the parts that's what he's saying so he agrees with madison and he's saying that we should keep the union together because if we break it up democracy will you know will take off in each of the separate parts because people will find it more e more um you know easier to influence government the closer it is to, to their lives and to their homes um so I'm not I'm not sh- I'm not totally sure even for myself whether these arguments translate directly to today because things have changed obviously the 14th amendment changed things the you know um, the civil rights bill of 1964 changed things um, but I think it's worth thinking about whether the union the constitution is synonymous with democracy a lot of you know critics of trump on the left kind of tend to suggest that they are and I'm not really so sure that they are um, You know, just one more kind of example, the Senate, which, you know, of course, we're all talking about. You know, know, I'm I'm personally relieved that um, the Democrats seem to have taken both seats and will have, you know, the embarrassed, razor-thin majority in the Senate. But when you think about it, the the two senators from Georgia represent about 10 million people, 10 million people in the state of Georgia, whereas the two senators from California represent 40 million people, four times as much. Um, And, of course, the smallest state, Wyoming, has one-tenth the population of Georgia. Um, and I saw, I saw a statistic that, the, you know, if, if there are 50 senators each from the Democratic and Republican parties, that the 50 Democratic senators represent 40 million more people than the Republican senators. Um, so it's really, you know, 40 million disenfranchised American voters. And that's the system designed by the founders and, and really having the effect that it did then, which is, you know, putting a, a really, you know, cold, wet blanket on any movement for, you know, real reform. A yes, we're speaking.
0: <laughs> we're speaking with Richard Kreitner about his book Break It Up: Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. Uh, Richard, there's so much more in in your book that's really fascinating that we won't be able to even begin to talk about, but it's important that we do discuss sort of what you were just getting at, and that's the original sin of the Constitution, which is around representation and involving slavery, and it required the compromising of morality for the creation and maintenance of the Union. Now, among the things I found surprising and I learned from your book is that uh, yeah, the, you know, some Southern states uh, kind of um, use their refusal to ratify the Constitution kind of as um, uh, I forget the word I'm looking for. that, you know, it's just uh, dist- extortion, kind of uh, mm-hmm. that that the you know the 3 clause and all that kind of stuff. I'm I'm fairly sure our listeners are familiar with that. What I did not understand was after the Constitution was ratified by the nine colonies, the states, um, the history up until the Civil War, where it was the North that was mulling over the idea of secession. Would you share with our listeners that history?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this is one of the, you know my, my really surprising discoveries. I went into the project with the hunch that it, it can't only have been the Southerners, the, the you know the future Confederates who. Considered secession from the union. It was probably you know other people who had the idea at other times, and that that's indeed true. You know, there's two kind of major northern movements or moments of where northerners are considering disunion. The first um, I, I mentioned before is the early 19th century, um, from about 1800 to about 1815, um, and you know the, the Hamilton Burr is is part of that. And this was a New England response to the presidencies of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, these Virginians Republicans, whereas most New Englanders were Federalists, um, and especially to the Louisiana Purchase of 1803, which most Americans think of, and I think most of us are taught in school, was this great moment of nation-building, where Jefferson, you know, for a mere pittance, $15 million, was able to double the size of the United States. Um, and, you know, who could be against that? Well, the entire region of New England was was you know fiercely against it because they realized that slavery would probably extend into most of that territory, and that they would lose power um, in the Congress and and in national politics. Um, and they thought that the country was big enough and and. Uh, So so they opposed the Louisiana Purchase, and especially, you know, the creation of new slave states out of it, and they threatened secession, um, you know, unless um, slavery was was either abolished in that area or the Three-Fifths Clause, which they now regretted um, agreeing to that compromise. Was repealed. Um, and then especially they were against the War of 1812, um, which they saw no purpose in fighting. They, they still had, you know, New England had still pretty close ties with Old England, with Great Britain. And they didn't want to fight the war and they really tried to sit it out. Um, and there's this, there's this really dramatic moment, um, at the end of 1814. Going into 1815, when New Englanders gather in a convention in Hartford, Connecticut, and it's it's widely believed in the country and certainly in New England where they wanted this to happen that the delegates would announce New England's secession from the Union. Um, instead, they sent a list of demands to Washington to President James Madison, insisting that he you know end the war, that he repeal the Three Fifths Compromise, that no to um, that presidents not be allowed to come from the same state uh, one after the other, um, you know, targeting this Virginia dynasty. And it's very likely that if they didn't get their way, which they weren't going to get their way, that they would have seceded at another convention that they had scheduled for a few months later in Boston. But in the meantime, just as their delegates are getting, you know, these emissaries are getting to Washington with this list of demands, comes word that the war is over, a peace has, you know, peace treaty has been ratified in Europe, and they look like, you know, not only fools but traitors, and they're laughed out of town, and that's really the end of the Federalist Party. so that's you know, that's one kind of dramatic moment where, where New Englanders threatened secession. And then the other one, these are really the heroes of, of the book in my in my um Thinking are the radical abolitionists of the eighteen thirties through the eighteen fifties who supported northern secession from the union to protest, and they believed actually practically undermine the institution of slavery. You know, they they really regretted these compromises in the constitution, not only the three fifths clause, but the fugitive slave clause, which required northern states to participate in the recapture and return of runaways from bondage, um, and excuse me, another clause that required states to or they required the federal government to help put down insurrections in the states which was a a provision responding not only to Shays' Rebellion but to the fear of slave rebellions. Um, And these abolitionists believed that those guarantees effectively underwrote the price of slaves because without them um, the institution of of human slavery would be much less secure and therefore the prices would plummet because people wouldn't want to invest in in such insecure property. So they believed that the North seceding from the Union would create an international border, you know, at the Mason Dixon line and the Ohio River, which would, you know, draw fugitives away from slavery and ultimately undermine and end the institution. Um a lot of, you know, even anti slavery people in their own time and historians since have, have, you know, doubted whether it would have worked that way. Um some people accuse them of leaving the slaves in in, in you know in their misery um And because these Northerners cared more about their own clean consciences than they did about ending slavery. I think that's kind of an unfair critique, because they did have this practical vision for how it would end slavery. Um, But either way, I just think that there's something so bold and courageous about these um these abolitionists who who really thought that the union you know as, as at the beginning should be a means to an end and that end being you know life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness rather than an end in itself and that the country should only survive if it was going to be devoted to those kinds of ideals and and protections for people's rights um and i think that we could use you know i imply or, or say in the book but i think we could really use a, a little hint of that today um you know, we're about to inaugurate this president who's really staked his his coming presidency and really his entire political career on the idea and the possibility of compromise. Um, but I think what we learned from American history from the the southern, you know, extortionist threats that you mentioned and also more recently from Barack Obama's presidency is that by by saying that you you're going to compromise um, no matter what you're really giving up ground you're negotiating from a position of weakness and you're letting the other side know that that you know they can threaten to walk away or to you know pull the trigger on secession or you know, violence, um, or some other kind of extreme remedy at any time, and merely by threatening to do that they can get their way without even actually having to go through with it. Um, so that's kind of a a long way from your question about the Northerners, but, um, I'm hoping that readers, at least those on the left, and I think anybody would enjoy the book, um, but, you know, that's my political, um, affinity. I think she'd look to these radical abolitionists for, for a taste of, of the kind of gumption that I think is really required at this moment. Um, where they were they were calling Southerners on their bus and saying, Oh, you want to secede? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, you know, we'll see how well that, that, that serves you. Um, and I think that you know we should we can use a little bit of that today. A uh,
0: short of secession. There were different movements of nullification. And I think that's a topic that is particularly relevant these days because of movements to nullify uh, different groups that claim uh, a constitutional authority to defy or ignore laws in sense, nullifying them. Uh, talk about how this played out in in the situations you were already discussing.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, that's another word that's kind of sprung back to American politics in a way that I think would have really surprised people 10, 15 years ago. You you heard a lot about this um, with regards to Obamacare, people talking about nullifying Obamacare. And I think we're going to hear more about that in the next couple of years, depending on what legislation um, the Biden administration and the Democratic Congress is able to pass. Um, There there are kind of two episodes in American history that really stand out to me. Well, a few, but I'll talk about two. One is the the famous nullification crisis in South Carolina in 1833, where the Southerners objected to a tariff um, that had been passed, Uh, and and the South Carolinians especially uh, relied on their exports of cotton and of of other, you know, slave-picked goods um, for for their economy. So they thought that these tariffs hurt them more than anybody else, and they decided that they weren't going to pay them. Um, They were going to violate federal law, and they dared the federal government to intervene and force them to, um, to to give in and then to you know obey the law. Um, I think that it was really about slavery, as most things in Southern politics, of course, were, and that they were kind of it was it was a trial run in case Congress should someday pass legislation either banning or limiting slavery, they wanted a trial run to be able to say we can go ahead and ignore federal law as we want to. And there was this epic clash with Andrew Jackson, who was the president at the time, who had been born in the South and sympathized with um, the anti-tariff position, but also cared a lot about national unity and and national power. Um, And there's this this showdown where they they kind of stared each other down. Ultimately, as with everything else in American history between the Revolution and the Civil War, and really since since the Civil War as well. It, you know, the country survived, and Civil War was averted because of compromise. Um, Jackson agreed to lower the tariffs, and the Southerners agreed that they would withdraw their nullification resolution. Um, but what what people kind of overlook in that episode, which I think is, is important today and connects to what I was just talking about um, earlier, is that it worked. You know, the threat of nullification actually did work to get the South Carolinians what they wanted, which was the tariffs to be repealed, and that what that taught them was that um, you know as I said before that that, they, that simply the threat of doing this kind of extreme action was enough to get them what they want, and I think there's a pretty strong case to be made that that's what convinced them in 1860, 1861 that threatening to secede from the union or doing it would convince lincoln and the republicans to buckle and give in and give the south what they wanted which was the repeal of the republican um... platform which which banned slavery from the territories and you know it's lincoln's incredible heroism that he kind of called them on that bluff and and um... made them go through with their threats um... it cost a lot of you know lives um... and money but um... but of course you know he won. um... And then the other, you know, a lot of people don't realize, as, as I was saying, that these, these anti-slavery northerners embraced disunion. They also embraced nullification in the 1850s um, when they were opposing the Fugitive Slave Act which strengthened the the mechanisms by which the Fugitive Slave Clause of the Constitution was enforced, and really made it every American citizen's responsibility to participate in the roundup of fugitives um, if they were called upon to do so by the authorities. And several states passed laws effectively nullifying that statute. Um, Ralph, Waldo, Ralph Waldo Emerson, you the know, famous Massachusetts philosopher, said that the Union itself is dissolved the moment the wicked law is enacted. Um again i think there's there's something in that that we can learn from um and uh and then also the Dred Scott case a few years later in 1857 was this you know horrific supreme court case which said that black people even if they were free could never be citizens of the united states and that no, that slavery could not be banned from the western territories uh an attempt to outlaw that republican platform um a lot of you know uh state legislatures in the north past resolutions saying that this does not apply to us this is not actual law this is totally made up um so I, you know again I, I think there's something to be learned from that but it also points to as today, where secession is being talked about on both sides of the spectrum, nullification I mentioned has been championed in recent years by the right, but also by the left. You know that's why marijuana is legal in, in twelve or thirteen states because people decided to just completely ignore the federal law or, or dare the federal government to enforce it, which which it has not. You know, proven willing to do. Um, so there's. there's In in all these periods, including the present, I think there's this kind of weakening of norms and of assumptions about what is possible in the constitutional structure of the United States. And that often leads to messy, you know... um, Circumstances like the Civil War, uh, to say the least, but also the progress, um, because there's something good, I think, about challenging these these bound assumptions and mothballed institutions that haven't really been tested or, you know, brought up to to the present. Um, if that makes sense.
0: Well. Uh... There's so many parallels. Uh, Tariffs, of course, is a big deal under the Trump administration. Didn't hear about them for quite a while until he came up with them again. Uh, Another parallel, I noted uh, Lincoln was elected with about 40% of the vote. Uh, We don't really remember how chaotic his election was, but a parallel with our current situation, he um, among his most fervent supporters were a group of young men called the Wide Awakes, and it it resonated with the current calling of woke attitudes around race, right. in particular. I'm glad you got that. <laughs> um, we don't really have time to go into the Wide Awakes, uh, but. I do note, and I sort of had forgotten this, but your book reminded me the firing on Fort Sumter actually occurred before Lincoln was inaugurated. So, a state of war. No,
1: No, it's about about a month later, actually. I'm sorry.
0: Oh, a month later?
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, I misunderstood. Okay, we'll forget that part. Um, But we I'm are
1: glad you caught the wide awake, so that was kind of a subtle little morsel that I left there for particularly attentive readers, the connection with woke today.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, like I said, we don't really have time to go into that, but uh, listeners can look that up for themselves. It's a pretty interesting story. Uh, when South Carolina and others seceded from the United States, as you had earlier mentioned, they invoked the invalidity of the Constitution of the United States for the very reason you said that instead of um, being ratified with um, 100% of the uh, colonies, as was required by what was then the law of the land, the Articles of Confederation. So they said they were within their rights uh, not to be bound by the Constitution. Now, we go back and forth about whether there is a right to secede or not there's no real answer to that but I'd love for you to explore that question
1: Sure, yeah, I mean I I think a kind of controversial or heterodox view of this I think what's clear is that at the time that the states did ratify the Constitution, everybody assumed that they had the right to secede, that they had the right to leave the Union to annul their, their agreement to the Constitution by the same mechanism with which they granted it, which is a popularly elected convention um, convened for that purpose. Um, I think it's very clear that they all assumed that to be the case, and three states, New York, Rhode Island, and maybe Virginia, I kind of forget, um, all all explicitly said that. Um so, if you take an originalist view of the Constitution, which I don't necessarily do, it, it seems pretty clear to me that that assumption prevailed at the time. Is it possible, as Jackson argued, as Lincoln argued, um, that that changed over time? That what had been a means to an end, the Union, in in the end, be you know over time became an end in itself and an, an unbreakable union? Um, I suppose that's that's as you say, pretty. Undetermined, inconclusive, you know, philosophical, up for debate. Um, and that's what the Civil War was ultimately fought over. Um, but that was certainly the claim of, of the South Carolinians. Um, one one other parallel, just while you mentioned them and their arguments for secession, that that struck out, that stood out to me. I, I have had, you know, for years a Google alert out for the word secession, so I see everything that anybody is saying about it. Um, and Glenn Beck, you know, is, is talking about it right now. And I saw that he was making the argument that the right should not secede from the United States, the left should secede from the United States, because they're the ones who are trying to change the Constitution or ignore it or overturn it, and we're the ones who are staying faithful to it, and that is, you know, pretty much, with the exception of they should succeed rather than we, that's pretty much the argument that the Southerners were making. They were saying, you know, you we're going to leave the United States, but we're going to keep the Constitution as we understand it, as it was originally intended to be. You guys are the ones who have forsaken the purpose of, of the of the country's founding, and um, and, you know, there's some kind of quote that we're going to, um, you know, keep – have a new vessel, but pour the same old liquid into it and, and keep keep the, the substance of the Constitution as it was intended to be. I think there's a very similar kind of dynamic or thought process going on on the right today, which is that, um, you know, even if, like today, right now, it looks like we are, <laughs> you know um, – dabbling with, you know, patently unconstitutional and certainly undemocratic um, tendencies in American politics, you guys are really the ones who are violating the Constitution.
0: All right, so here's a can of worms. We've done numerous shows over the years about the dangers of forces in the United States calling for an Article Five constitutional convention uh, to redo the Constitution, you are not entirely persuaded that this is a bad idea. Would you please state your case for our listeners?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that the um, the the hurdles are high enough to prevent anything horrible from passing into law, anything that, um, you know, for better or for worse, um, those hurdles being high. I think that that there are enough obstacles that you need two-thirds of the states to agree um, to any changes are high enough to prevent anything really bad from from being passed. And I think it is possible that we could pass things that really most people do agree on. Um, I think Overturning Citizens United, I think most citizens, most voters um, agree on. And that's not going to pass through, through Congress, you know, um, that kind of constitutional amendment, because those people are elected under the current system. So I think that, that we kind of need to take it into our own hands on that question. I also think we can reform the Supreme Court in a way that would, you know, get bipartisan support. I think that they should all have 18-year term limits um, that are staggered so that each presidential term sees the same number of vacancies. And there are ways to, to work it out so that if somebody dies in office, it, it's, they, the role is filled in a nonpartisan way. I think that would take away the kind of, you know, roulette wheel uh, situation that we have with, with Supreme Court nominations right now. Um, I think because Republicans stole a seat from the Democrats, uh, the court should be packed as well. But I think, and which would obviously be more controversial, and that can go through Congress, but I think that, that we should institute, Supreme you know, Supreme Court term limits, and I think that would be, you know, fairly bipartisan. Um, and I think there's a couple other things. I, I just, I disagree with the argument that, um, I, it just it's, it, the, the, the anti-Article 5 argument seems to me to suggest that we're simply not capable of self-government anymore. And I think that if we think that is the case, then we should say so and probably just pull the plug and break it up. I see I the see Constitutional Convention as kind of the last-ditch effort to save the country from total ruin. And if that fails, then, then it's time to break it up.
0: My understanding of the article against the argument against uh, it is that it would be impossible to control what is done in an Article 5 convention, and that the powers that already have uh, power uh, and forces like anti democratic forces, such as the coal. you know, lobby, that sort of thing, uh, would get control and it would run away. Uh, but that that's a discussion we'll have to have for another day. Very briefly, Richard Kreitner, uh, 10 seconds for final words for our listeners.
1: Um, please check out the book. I think it's a, a new version of American history that you probably haven't been exposed to. Um, do I have time to talk about the Constitutional Convention or no? very briefly very briefly, I just, I think it's interesting that what we describe as our fears of a second constitutional convention very much applies to the first, which is that it could be captured by, you know, shadowy, moneyed interests, and that it would get out of control and they might propose things that that, you know, we didn't sign up for, which is exactly what happened in Philadelphia and a document that most people, you know, celebrate and champion 250 years later or so um, so that there's, there's a, a contradiction there, I think
0: Well, we thank you very much for your work and for joining us today on Forthright Radio, Richard Kreitner, and um, hopefully we'll have you back again because there's so much more to discuss.
1: I'd be happy to. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: Our guest today on Forthright Radio has been Richard Kreitner. We've been discussing his book, Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union, published by Little Brown and Company. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production broadcast each first and third Wednesday of the month from the Philo Studios of KZYX and Z, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. Engineer Rich Culbertson, I'm Joy Laclaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, Forthright. I'm not sure if uh, we'll be back in a fortnight, because that is uh, Inauguration Day, and 9 o'clock Pacific Time will be noon Eastern Time, so uh, it's possible that we will be covering the Inauguration. Regardless, um, till next time, this is Joy Laclaire signing out for now.